0: Welcome to Advocation Change It Up, a new podcast series hosted by Dr. Karen Liller, a professor at the USF College of Public Health and director of the Activist Lab.
1: Hello and welcome to Advocation Change It Up, the podcast series of the University of South Florida College of Public Health Activist Lab. I'm Dr. Karen Liller, a professor at the College of Public Health and director of the Activist Lab, and I'm joined by one of our student advisory board members, Carla Salazar. Hi, Carla. Hi, Dr. Lillard. I'm so grateful to be here today. Well, absolutely. We're glad you're here, and I think this is going to be a great podcast. The Activist Lab at the college prepares our students to be exemplary advocates and leaders in public health. And if you just Google us at our website, you'll see all the educational programs we do. We have boot camps, seminars. We do research on a variety of public health topics and advocacy and work to assure students have practice experience in the community at the state and national levels. This podcast involves talking with public health leaders and advocates whose work has led to great improvements in public health. We'll be talking in each podcast with a guest on a particular public health issue, and we'll end each podcast by asking how we, as the community, can advocate for change. Today, I'm so very excited to be talking with our guest, Dr. Jason Salemi, about where we are at with, none other, COVID-19, what should we anticipate in the near future, and what the far future may look like, not only related to COVID-19, but unfortunately, perhaps future pandemics. By way of introduction, Dr. Salemi is presently an associate professor in the USF College of Public Health and a triple USF alumnus, having earned his Bachelor's of Science in Biology and pre Sciences and an MPH and PhD, both with a concentration in Epidemiology, here in the College of Public Health. In addition to his degrees, he also earned graduate certificates in biostatistics and applied biostatistics. After graduating in 2014, he accepted a 10-year earning assistant professor position at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, and while there held many titles. Dr. Salemi is nationally recognized as an expert in birth defect surveillance methodology, evaluation, and research. He currently serves as chair of the Surveillance Guidelines and Standards Committee for the National Birth Defects Prevention Network after serving as president of that organization in 2018. In May of 2020, Dr. Salemi began building his own statewide interactive dashboard to track COVID-19 in the state of Florida. His dashboard has received national attention from the COVID tracking project and has been an invaluable resource for researchers data scientists, advocacy groups, county commissioners, and other citizens throughout the state. He has been covered extensively on local, national, and international media discussing the importance of complete, accurate, and timely data on COVID-19 and how COVID-19 is impacting our pediatric population. I might also add, I've known Dr. Salemi, or Jason, a very long time, even when he was a student. So it must be true, everyone always returns to USF. So how are you, Jason?
2: I'm doing great, Dr. Liller. This is uh, exciting for me and I, I appreciate the invitation.
1: All right, so you've done quite well, I might say. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you
2: so much, USF trained me well.
1: Oh, there you go, there you go. So can you tell us a little bit about where we stand today with COVID-19? We know that deaths did decline, however, now they are increasing due to the Delta variant. We know mass mandates have been lifted in Florida and many other places and folks are so wanting to get back to normal. Some have with no social distancing or mask wearing at all. But in terms of the numbers or the epidemiology, where are we truly with morbidity and mortality and especially in Florida, and would be great if you could talk about your dashboard.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think the unfortunate thing is if you would have asked me this question five or six weeks ago, I would have had a very different, much more optimistic answer. Uh, But, you know, just five weeks ago, to put the numbers in context because they're pretty striking right now, Mm -hmm. we had just under 10,500 cases in an entire week. That was the lowest weekly total since June 2020. Wow. Now we're at greater than 73,000 cases in the most recent week, and that's almost 10,500 a day. So again, just five weeks ago, we had in a week what we're now having every day in terms of cases. And in terms of cases, that's the highest weekly total since January 15th. In the past five weeks, just to put it in context, because a lot of people like to say, well, are we just testing more people? Testing is actually up 53%. Wow. We went from That's testing 45,000 mm-hmm. people a day mm-hmm. to 69,000 people a day. 53% increase, but cases are up 600%, right? A sevenfold increase. And again, for more perspective, Florida makes up less than 7% of the United States population, yet they make up over 20% of cases in the past two weeks. But it's not just cases it's not just positivity it's really indicators of severe illness and that's what's most concerning and for that we often turn to new hospitalizations and so you know i analyzed some data just over the weekend from the federal government they release it every saturday on hospitalizations and florida had over 7400 confirmed covid19 hospitalizations in the past seven days that's more than a thousand people hospitalized every day Goodness. It's a 141% increase from two weeks ago, and it's more than a quadrupling from just one month ago. It's the most we've had since January 19th, which obviously at that point in time, we didn't have much help right. from the vaccines. Mm-hmm. And so now Florida has, unfortunately, the highest seven-day confirmed COVID-19 admission rate, even after you adjust for population size in the United States, and we're second highest on pediatric hospitalizations. Mm -hmm. And so again, the unfortunate thing is this is impacting every age group. People think, well, seniors in Florida are mostly vaccinated, but the increase in the past four weeks In people 80 years of age and older, in terms of new hospitalizations, is a 372% increase. Mm -hmm. It's a 213% increase in children. So it's impacting every single age group. And, you know, we've got a lot of reasons that I'm sure we can Mm -hmm. unpackage as to why that's the case. But a lot of the numbers are just headed in a bad direction right now.
1: Um, That's such a shame, but your dashboard is so helpful for finding that information, right? (laughs) Yeah,
2: so the the dashboard is something that, you know, this did not start with an intention that I was going to provide a service to the public. I'd like to say that I started with that in mind, but this really started with me just being curious about the data. Mm -hmm. I got a lot of wonderful training at USF on Mm -hmm. how to manage data, link data, visualize data, and so I started to put some things for me to understand what was happening in the pediatric population. I knew from the data coming out of Wuhan, China, that thankfully, and we still know this to be true today, children are much less likely to get severely ill than older Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. But I also knew that we had 74 million children in the United States, and if we let COVID-19 go in an unmitigated fashion, that could still be hundreds, thousands of children who could end up in the intensive care units or dying. So in my effort to try and understand that data, I compiled a lot of information from the Florida Department of Health I started to try and learn about it, but it wasn't until on social media, which I wasn't very, you know, I like to share pictures of my three-year-old. That's yeah. about all I do uh-huh. on social media sure. until I started to look at the misinformation mm-hmm. and disinformation, mm-hmm. even in my inner circle of friends and family. And so in my effort to combat that information, I started to make some of these visualizations available to people. And they're like, well, wow, this really helps over what the state is providing. Yeah to help understand the numbers. Mm -hmm. You should make this publicly available. And I said, well, okay, I've only got five or six visualizations. I'll make it publicly available. And lo and behold, when I then started to, you know, show some of the visualizations on Twitter, and I got contacted by the National COVID Tracking Project and their amazing initiative to try and understand COVID-19 across all states. And Mm -hmm. they said, would you please join our group to try and better understand the data in Florida? And from there, it just really blew up. To make a very long story short, I went to over 100 visualizations. I had more than 50 different data sets that I was bringing in. And I was very proud of trying to add to what the state was providing. Mm -hmm. So I wanted it to be more granular. If somebody wanted to know in my county, in Hillsborough County, among females who are of school age, you know, uh, what What is the the state of the pandemic there? What Mm -hmm. does the cases look like? And Mm so people could get very specific information. They could get nice visualizations that bring it to life. Mm -hmm. And the real thing I wanted to do, and I think this benefited not only just lay people in the public, but media is I wanted my visualizations to be interactive. So you might get your typical epidemic curve, but when you hover over any data point, you get a lot of additional information. You get cumulative cases to date. What are the trends in the past seven days, 14 days? How Mm -hmm. much have we increased in the past month? You get a lot of additional information to just provide context to the numbers.
1: And where can the listeners find? your dashboard.
2: Yeah, I I can certainly give you the link to share. It's, um, you know, since I'm doing this all on my own and I needed a cheap uh, alternative, (laughs) I don't have like a (laughs) (laughs) jasonsalami.com.
0: So it's uh,
2: it's a strikingly website. That's who I go to uh, to, to build it. But it's something that I can give the exact link out. Okay, And it's actually transitioned quite a bit Uh because, as I'm sure we'll talk about, the Department of Health changed not only the frequency with how they were reporting data, but the breadth of what they were reporting. And so Mm -hmm. right now it's much more of a floor of centric on certain parts of it, but I brought in a lot more national data because as you can imagine with what's happened in the past four to six weeks, we need context on how are we doing relative to the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of people need to get these very amazingly granular data sets, but they're not very usable. Mm -hmm. And so I try and take those national data sets and And also bring them to life for people. Right.
1: And probably if folks would just Google
2: yeah. yeah. If, if folks Google the COVID-19 Slammy's Jason they it's one of the first things <laughs> they'll I, find I out know, there. I know, People don't want to know about me, but they do want they, to know about wonder. my dashboard. Oh,
1: that's great. That's great. Thank you so much. Um, Carla, do you have some questions? Yeah.
0: So I think it's inevitable to talk about COVID-19 now and not mention the new Delta variant. So I want to know what are your thoughts about this new variant and how it's affecting Florida.
2: Yeah, (laughs) right. not not Not, something I love, let's just say I don't have many good things to say about the Delta variant. Look, the the thing about viruses is just as we're trying to come up with ways to combat them and the kind of illness that they're causing in people, so we come up with vaccines, our immune systems come up with ways to fight against the virus. The virus's job is to come up with ways to fight back Mm -hmm. against us. Mm -hmm. And so that was always the danger. We talked about community spread when the virus is at high levels and circulating, especially in people who are not fully protected by the vaccine you know you think about what a virus is going to do every time it replicates it has the chance to mutate and develop these things that make it a little bit more effective at what it does. And in terms of its ability to hit a home run, you know, get something that makes it more transmissible or makes it evade our our natural immunity or vaccine-acquired immunity, that's going to be exceedingly rare. But if you let the virus keep rolling the dice, right, we we keep letting it Mm -hmm. replicate in people, it's more and more likely that one of these variants of concern will hold. And that's what happened with Delta. And so Delta, what we're finding is that it's just so much more virus that's harbored inside of your upper respiratory tract. It's so much more transmissible. We talked mm-hmm. a lot early on about the are not, right? Th- yes. this, this measure that basically says on average, how many people will a, will a person who gets infected, actually infect themselves and so last summer it may have been one or two so on average a person who gets the SARS-CoV-2 virus is going to infect one or two other people right right but now it's more like six or eight wow. so it's just mm. much more transmissible and that's really one of the major reasons of course why we're finding ourselves in this situation All else being equal, if we were doing everything the same as we were last year, it's still going to cause a lot more cases, a lot more hospitalizations, Mm -hmm. and a lot more deaths. And so that's why it's even more important that even though we've got immense help now from the vaccines, which thankfully Mm -hmm. are very effective against the Delta variant, we've got to now couple that with other mitigation strategies, mm-hmm. like yes. facial coverings, when right. especially when we're in indoor public settings, socially distancing, doing, doing as many things outdoors as we can, even though the, the Florida heat <laughs> does not make that easy. doesn't make that easy, easy for no, us here it does in not. Florida. <laughs>
1: Thank
0: you. Carla, any other questions now? No, I think that's it for now. Okay. Yeah.
1: Well, while we're talking about vaccines, mm-hmm. let's expand on that a little bit. Um, and the potential for booster vaccines. Uh, You know, as we know, uh, Jason and Carla, the vaccines have been fabulous. I mean, amazing that those vaccines were ready, were out, uh, people were taking the vaccine. But a lot of questions people have is, do we know enough now to say how long they're going to work? I just heard something this morning on NPR from Uh, from different physicians about their estimates of it and if we might need boosters. And then there's also this population of folks that we could talk about for a long time who refuse to be vaccinated, absolutely refuse. And right now we cannot make this vaccine in most cases compulsory. So in addition to talking about the vaccines, could you talk a little bit about how you respond to populations who just do not believe us do not believe the science first of all maybe there's no covid you know maybe the science is wrong and even if they do believe it they don't want to get vaccinated they feel like guinea pigs they say no it was rushed it was rushed and and hopefully you'll address that because we know it's not but anyway but it was rushed out there so so in addition to the vaccines what? What's your take on that as an epidemiologist?
2: Yeah, there is so much to unpackage there <laughs> when we talk about vaccinations. So, right. first, the numbers, you know, the unfortunate numbers really. In mid April, mm-hmm. we were administering 1.4 million doses to Florida right. residents. Now we've gotten to 250,000 doses, much less. We haven't been over a half million doses since May. So we've really become stagnated. Yes. And that's with only 48% of the population in Florida fully vaccinated. If you just consider the vaccine eligible age, we're at 55%. Mm-hmm. So it's been projecting downwards. And and the scary thing, you know, a lot of people say, well, with, with so many vaccinated people, why are we in this situation? Right. And we have to think about sheer numbers now. And these are pretty astonishing to me. Let's focus on the people who are not fully vaccinated. In Florida, if we just talk about those of vaccine-eligible age, it's over 8 million. 8 million people. That includes, and this one also shocks a lot of people, over 900,000 seniors in this state are not protected through full vaccination. And then you add on the 2.8 million children younger than 12 who cannot cannot be be protected (laughs) through vaccination. So, I'm really pleased because a big part of this has been misinformation and disinformation about the vaccine. Mm-hmm. You first alluded to the fact that, you know, a lot of people think this is rushed and I get it. Usually clinical trials take 5, 10, Long 15 years for to vaccine. do things like this, right. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it feels like, well, how could they have come up with something so safe and effective in such a short period of time? And so a good example to that is the mRNA vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna that we're giving out here there's countless years of research mm-hmm. into mRNA vaccines that has existed before existed. this. We right. just never had a pandemic on which to actually implement them, but it's not like we even started thinking about this. I mean, this is many, many years in the making. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they could react so responsively and in a timely fashion and get this out. And we We're really, really lucky in the United States. I've done some recent talks. I talked to Indonesia and they're experiencing Mm -hmm. such a spike, very similar to what happened in India. I recently talked last week to a show in Australia where Mm -hmm. the vaccination coverage, so in Australia, it's 11% of the population. In Indonesia, it's even less than that. That's why the Delta variant is just ravaging those countries. You think we have high hospitalization rates. I mean, the deaths are just mounting because so few people have the ability to be protected by the vaccines. And so I'm very happy to hear our governor, recently addressed some of that misinformation and disinformation when he said, look, there are going to be a lot of people who are fully vaccinated who test positive.
0: Mm -hmm. That
2: is not uh, evidence that the vaccine does not work. That's not what the vaccines were designed to do. It It wasn't to prevent you from getting infected. It was to prevent you from getting severely ill. Mm -hmm. That's what the clinical trials are all about. And from that standpoint, they are immensely effective. And one of the numbers I use on that is true breakthrough infections. And what I mean by that is the CDC through July 19th has data that says about just under 6,000 people in this country were fully vaccinated and ended up in the hospital or ended up dying from COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Your risk is not zero once you're fully vaccinated, but that 6,000 people is among 161 million people mm-hmm. who have been fully vaccinated. Right. That boils down Very to small. a chance of one in 27,000 mm-hmm. that you're gonna be fully vaccinated and end up in the hospital mm-hmm. or die. Mm-hmm. So they're immensely effective at that, but we are going to continue to see people fully vaccinated who test positive. That should not be a shock to us, and it really shouldn't be a concern that those people are going to get sick. But where it is important is fully vaccinated people, if they go out in public, in indoor settings, they can get the virus, they can transmit Transmit it to other people, Mm -hmm. many of whom may not be protected Mm -hmm. through vaccination. Mm -hmm. And so why we're in this situation, First of all, I really think we're not doing ourselves a service. I, and even though the data support this, we talk about the tale of two pandemics, among the vaccinated and among the unvaccinated. And we mm-hmm. constantly berate and vilify unvaccinated people in total. And, and I think it's much more nuanced than that. I think the reasons that people are not fully vaccinated are quite varied, actually. Mm -hmm. I I think Mm -hmm. there are still transportation challenges that we hear about. There are a lot of people that still live far away from their healthcare facilities, can't get a flexible work schedule, language barriers. Mm -hmm. Digital literacy is a big one. The things that may make things easy for us, great, I just signed up for CVS Mm -hmm. on my smartphone or I just went online and registered, Mm -hmm. it was so easy. Those things that make it easy for us can make it immensely challenging for others who are not digitally literate. So to paint everybody with this broad brush Mm -hmm. and say, ah, they just don't care about themselves or their communities, I think is wrong and I think is counterproductive in trying to increase vaccination rates. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things we're doing more recently in Hillsborough and Pinellas counties with this delivered pharmacy where you don't have to go to a fancy sign-up, you can call a number, they'll come out to your house free of charge Mm -hmm. and give you a vaccination. That's so great. So that's going to address part of the issue, but there is a big proportion of of the unvaccinated population who are either on the fence. And what I would say to people truly on the fence, the wait and see is now's a pretty good time to not be on the fence. You see what's happening with the numbers. Again, this isn't just cases, it's hospitalizations that are kind of going through the roof. I don't mean to be hyperbolic, but they are increasing at such a rapid pace. Now's the time to get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And I think there are a lot of people who just, you know, mainly because of the information that they are receiving. And I understand how confusing and conflicting it can be that a lot of people are saying it's not safe. It will mess with uh, young women's reproductive uh, fertility. Exactly. You know, a yeah. lot of these things that are not supported by the evidence, mm-hmm. all the, they don't have to convince you that the vaccine is bad. They have to sow a seed of doubt. Right. And if you doubt it, you're unlikely to go and get vaccinated. And so the way that I think, I am not a behavioral scientist, <laughs> but I think it's, it's not about telling people what to do. Mm -hmm. It's not about even celebrities getting up there and saying, I've been vaccinated. It's having personal conversations with people, Mm -hmm. sharing why you chose to get vaccinated Mm -hmm. or why my parents chose Mm -hmm. to get vaccinated. I think those conversations go a lot further. And that's tough, right? Because that means a lot of hands need to be on deck and having those conversations mm-hmm. to make any sort of real difference. But uh, I do not think that berating or vilifying, encouraging is certainly fine, but I think you know we need to make sure that the accurate information continues to get out there right. through all sources of through, media. Through all
1: sources and in an understandable way, too, a, and, and a trusting that's way. a
2: great point. You know, right. I, I see people like, you know, there's, there's a misperception that the vaccine will change your DNA. And I, I see a right. lot of people say, no, it won't. Well, no, let's let's better explain what the vaccines are going to Why do. Why it will not do that. Right. The vaccines right. are designed to mm-hmm. help your body naturally fight this infection. Mm-hmm. That's all that the vaccines are doing. Mm-hmm. They're not fighting it, right? They're priming your immune right. system your own body. To naturally. Mm-hmm battle this virus when it gets into your system so that you do right. not get severely ill. Yeah. And so yeah, you're right. There there's a lot on on um, you know, scientific communication that we could improve. Absolutely. But um I just hear a lot of vilifying and I get it. I get that people are frustrated. They feel like if more people were vaccinated, mm-hmm. we'd be in a better situation and we probably would be. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's going to take, you know, put yourself in that position if if I had been hearing a lot of the things that even you know, my friends and family have been hearing, um, I would be confused. And Mm -hmm. so, um, Mm -hmm. I know they're getting a lot of information from a lot of different angles. And so it's our job to try and pare that down into simple, accurate, scientifically based evidence, right. Um, And then again, have those personal conversations. Don't tell people what to do. Tell them why you took those steps, you know, have them realize, oh, okay, well that makes a lot of sense to me. And I've had some of those conversations with friends and family and sometimes it works and sometimes it it still hasn't.
1: Sometimes, sometimes it really doesn't, you know, it's, it's about reaching people where they are too. And, you know, just telling people instead of saying, you must do this, you should, why didn't you do that? And all of that. Do you want for life to get back to normal for yourself? You know, you worry about masks, do you not wanna worry about these arguments or this discussion? The vaccine is a way to bring your life back to normal. And so there's lots of, of ways I think that we could have communicated this. Yeah, and a lot of this
2: is people's own personal assessment of risk. Why is there such a strong correlation between a person's age and the likelihood (laughs) that they are vaccinated, right? Vaccination rates go up as people get older Mm -hmm. because their perceived risk of illness from COVID-19 goes up. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it's hard to convince people unless it's happened to them that if you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, yes. right? Maybe you don't see the pie in the sky of, well, this is also gonna help bring down spread and we get back to normal. But what right. is my own, you know, being selfish, right? right. What is my own perceived risk, risk? You think it's very small and it is much smaller than people who are older. Mm-hmm. Same thing happens with children. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot we don't know about this virus. Mm-hmm. We hear the term long COVID. A lot of these symptoms yes, and and forever. and long-term mm-hmm. sequela that mm-hmm. happened from COVID-19, we're seeing a lot of young people who are getting hospitalized. And you don't really know. I've also seen a lot of blaming going on that, well, it's only if you're a young person with comorbidities. Those are the only people who end up in the hospital. And that is also not true. Right? Yes, it might increase your risk, but we're blaming the victim. Then again, Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. see plenty of young children, plenty of young people in their twenties and thirties who are ending up in the hospitals. And what are they telling their doctors at that point in time? Many of them are saying, my god i wish i had taken this more seriously i wish i would have gotten vaccinated Mm -hmm. and not have listened to the information that was coming because it just wasn't accurate and at that point for them, it's too late. I don't mean that you know these people are going to die, but they're already in this situation. And it's almost like this reflection back. And I even read a story about a man, I forget if it was, it was in one of the hot states in Missouri or Arkansas, where he was in the hospital. And he, as soon as they got him to a point where he was stable, all he wanted to do is call his friends and family mm-hmm. and tell them, please go I'm and get it. vaccinated. Go do it now. Right. I now realize I was a healthy man. In my 40s, this can happen to anybody. Mm -hmm. And so again, maybe it's a lot of that happening. Unfortunately, I'd like to not think that it's gonna be people getting sick that wakes people up or encourages them to go and get vaccinated, but that's also gonna happen.
1: Yeah, and some of these long-term effects that people have are just going on and on and on, right? They're getting out of the hospital or they feel better and then they call it like COVID brain and other things, other neurological issues that they're having. So Yeah. yeah, it can be quite complicated. So
0: Carla- Questions? Yeah. Well, first, I want to give a shout out to Nate and Orlando for helping me come up with these questions. Uh, one <laughs> okay. of my questions is, what do you think is the role that epidemiology plays in creating community-based uh, behaviors toward vaccinations and vaccination acceptance? And I think you might have already touched on that, but if you can expand on that, I would appreciate it.
2: Yeah. As an epidemiologist, I think first and foremost of myself as the data stewards. Right. Mm, I want to make yeah. sure mm. that accurate information is available to people. If you don't have an accurate base of information, I think everything else begins to fall apart. Because as soon as you disseminate information and it's inaccurate, people can point to it and say, see, even the so-called experts don't know what they're talking Mm -hmm, about. mm -hmm. Part of the challenge in science has always been, but never more so than during a pandemic, is the science evolves. What we know about something that's Mm -hmm. brand new, like COVID-19, changes. And our recommendations will have to change with that. And so this is not specific to the vaccines, but our recommendations for mitigation efforts and mask wearing, that will change. And it's hard, you know, because people who are spreading misinformation and disinformation, they are 100% confident. Right? If they're lying about something, they can be 100% mm-hmm. confident in that lie. And That is very comforting to people. When somebody says, I know this to be the case, right. I know that the vaccines will harm you, that's comforting. Wow. And as scientists, we're naturally always cautious. Very curious. Right. Yeah, yeah. About with what we're, saying. what we're saying. Right. Based anything, on the available evidence. Yeah, if
1: <laughs> anything, exactly. I always like to say that as scientists, we try to disprove ourselves all the time. All the time. Yeah. That's why we have these hypotheses that say, you know, like the null hypotheses, which was basically like nothing happened, you know, you had you had no effect here whatsoever. So it's almost you know, so as a so when you hear that information about it's not true or this is a lie, it's like no, our our whole job is to almost, you know Disprove what we're saying. We want to make 100% sure what we're saying is correct.
2: Yeah. And when you live, though, in a society that is so now focused on small, quick tidbits and saying, you don't have time Mm -hmm. to explain things in a manner that really shows people how exactly. much has gone into this. So it's it's just an immense challenge. And mm-hmm. so I start from the data first. Let's see if we can get an accurate database. And then mm-hmm. again, I pair with my colleagues who are a lot better about behavioral change and understanding, but even the scientists who are great at that, I really still believe in my heart of heart that it's these conversations that we have with friends and family and, and supporting each other's community. I'll give you another example. When we first rolled out the vaccine in Florida, what happened? You saw this massive disparity and ethnic Mm -hmm. disparity on vaccine uptake. Mm -hmm. Why? Because at the beginning, it was just a lot of people like me saying, go out and get the vaccine. It's really good for you. Here's all of the evidence. And there are a lot of minority communities that science has not treated very well in right? the past, yeah. and yes. so they have a right to be skeptical. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. who should be giving them that information? The communities that they trust, and so pairing with, for example, non-Hispanic Black churches mm-hmm. and having them convey this message—they've already earned the trust of those communities. Same thing in Hispanic communities. Let's work with local leaders and grassroots organization that has earned the trust of these individuals and have them disseminate the information. So it's not just as you know, it's not good enough to have. Have accurate data, it's also in who is conveying that information to conveyed. people, how it's being yes. conveyed. That's when we started. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, there's still obviously a racial and ethnic disparity in vaccine uptake, but it certainly helped quite a bit in Florida. Yes. We saw those disparities go down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I, I've heard so much of the painting people with a broad brush. Eh, it's people in rural settings, it's blacks, it's Hispanics, it's you know. And that's just not the case in all communities. I can give you an exception to every rule. I can show you very, very rural counties who have a lot of minorities and they have really high vaccination. So maybe we should focus on them. In science, we we call that positive deviance, right? Yeah. They seem like they have the deck stacked against them and yet their outcomes Mm -hmm. or their vaccine uptake is so much better. So Mm -hmm. it is not an easy challenge, but I think we're learning more and more every day. I'd like to see the vilification of people decrease and more of the positive encouragement of people to kind of do the right thing at the end of the day, I think that will make the biggest yeah, difference.
1: I do too.
0: So I think this question might deviate a little bit from the topic, mm-hmm. but I wanted to know like what are yet, what are we yet to acknowledge in public health regarding a role in impacting human attitudes? So in this, I, I talking about like stigma, prejudices and stereotypes, like I feel we may want to give up on someone when it comes to vaccination because we think, oh, they don't believe in science or so whatever. Like I'm not, you know. Not going to even try if they don't believe in science as much as we do. Yeah,
2: fantastic question and perfectly <laughs> on topic, as a matter of fact. Yeah. If public health professionals haven't learned something, first of all, I, I give an immense shout out to public health professionals, medical professionals. Mm, absolutely. There are unsound right. heroes in mm. this, yeah. uh, you know, what, what they poured mm. their uh, blood, sweat, and tears into. But if we haven't learned as a discipline something about scientific communication of information to multiple stakeholder groups, including the general public, then we're doing a disservice to ourselves because I think it's we've learned it's not just easy enough to tell people what the right things to do are and should we be just telling them or should we be having conversations? Should we berate people who are just getting information that is false from another source, but we just say, ah, you're, you're not very smart if you believe that, or should we be having better conversations with people? A lot of people look at us and think we're, we think we're high and mighty. We're sitting in the ivory mm-hmm. tower and mm-hmm. we're talking down mm-hmm. to them. And in many ways we have been talking down to them. Most mm-hmm. recently when I hear about the tale of the unvaccinated, the pandemic of the unvaccinated, Again, the data support that. They are bearing the disproportionate brunt of COVID-19 right now, cases, hospitalizations. Mm -hmm. But again, it's the conversations we have with people, the ways in which we communicate them, and the ways in which we kind of can brush them off so easily. Like, we're never gonna hit them. They're in a red state or they're in a red county. And that's just not true. Most people are trying to do the right things to protect themselves, their families, and their communities. They mm-hmm. really are trying. But sometimes that can be a challenge depending on when, the, where they're getting their information from. And it's very easy to then kind of live in an echo chamber yes, where all you're all, hearing yep. is a lot of people mm-hmm. saying the same things, and sometimes those things are not wrong, I mean, are wrong, they're not scientifically based, but you keep hearing it. And everybody around you is saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's very easy to then have that become sure. ingrained. So mm-hmm. there should be a lot, again, it continues to be a challenge. I'm not the biggest expert, but I will say me personally, I have gone from almost being disappointed. Wow. You know, we're so lucky in the United States. There's a portion of the population that is just, you know, they're setting us back. We're not able to get back to, to normal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I no longer think that because I've heard enough stories about people who to to this day are unvaccinated, but they're genuinely trying to do the right thing and trying to make the right decisions. And it's just not easy for them. It's our job. To try and break through, have conversations, not just belittle them and right. make them feel as though they're they're foolish mm-hmm. for not doing something that may seem obvious to us. So it's a great question, uh, and I'm hoping that we've learned a lot because this will not be the last time no. we need to continually interact I with the agree. public. It should be every day, <laughs>
1: right?
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's all my questions. Okay. Yeah. All right, you're good. I just wanted to to talk
1: about folks not getting vaccinated too. I have a couple nephews who are in their twenties, right, and uh, so they, well, you know, they talked about vaccines. I said, you have to get vaccinated. And they was like, w- we're not vaccinated. And I said, why would you not be vaccinated? Yeah. And one of my nephews, uh, he said, I had COVID. This is a, 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 a way folks think. And therefore I have the antibodies. So why would I mm-hmm. get vaccinated? Right. And then I hear about people getting vaccinated and they get sick yep. and they're laid up. So why would I, why would I, why would I do that? I said, well, you know, we don't have any evidence that your antibodies, right, from this natural course of infection and in your antibodies are going to last. We we don't know. That. In fact, you should be back. But there's that understanding. But he never heard that. He never heard that. Oh, really? I didn't know. I thought if I got it and I was diagnosed with COVID, that I'm set. Right. I've already made the antibodies. So, again, you know, as you're saying, you have to listen to yeah. people. And instead of just saying, get vaccinated, what's <laughs> right. wrong with you, you know. That's the reason. And so when I talked to him about it, he said, yeah, okay. He said, but I never heard that.
2: Yeah, natural immunity is yep. just different it's from different. vaccine-acquired immunity. Right? They're designing these vaccines so that they elicit the perfect response. It. Obviously, it's not perfect. Your risk is not mm-hmm. zero, but um, you mm-hmm. know, it, it's trying to elicit the ideal response from your immune system. And natural immunity may not do that. It may not last as long. That's right? These two booster shots, when you get it from Moderna or Pfizer, the single from the J and J. Again, they're primed to help your body mm-hmm. to best fight the virus. And so, even if you've Had COVID 19 before, you can get it again. And so you're going to be so much more protected if you go out there and get vaccinated. And to your point about, well, I've heard about blood clots in young people or myocarditis, you know, we are so cautious about this. So there's an adverse event reporting system for vaccines and we're constantly monitoring it and we go above and beyond. So even if we see A slight rise in this very rare outcome. The CDC, the federal government, we are going to investigate this. And as you saw with the Johnson & Johnson, Mm -hmm. we will even stop administering vaccines in in an abundance of caution to make sure that there's nothing there. But the biggest, well, one of the biggest challenges as it relates to the vaccine is when you vaccinate, what did I say, 161 million people, it's probably a little bit higher now, a lot of those people... Even if they weren't vaccinated, right, they're going to die tomorrow. They're going to get in car accidents. They're going to have heart attacks. They're going to have a lot of bad things happen to them. And in some cases, getting vaccinated, those things will still happen. Mm -hmm. And that's the big challenge. You're going to hear about somebody who gets vaccinated today, Mm because who did we target first? The highest risk people, really elderly people who, again, a number of them would have died next week, even without the vaccine. But if they die right after taking the vaccine, Mm -hmm. now people think it was caused by the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And so trying to help people to understand our job is to say, are these bad adverse events happening at a rate? above and beyond what we would have expected, mm-hmm. even in the absence of the vaccine. And so again, these are semi-complicated topics that take a while to get through. And the general public just hears, oh, they got the another-
1: vaccine and then they got And that's Bingo. a common approach of, of folks, they call themselves the anti-vaxxers yeah. or they, who don't like any vaccines. Right. And uh, that's often the analogy they'll use. Someone got something when when in reality, you know, of course, we could, you know, talk about autism and go right. back to all the anti-vax when that occurs, when is when children get vaccinated, it has to be around the same age, you right. start seeing spikes in autism, you go, well, but they it's been equated with vaccines, mm-hmm. and even though it's been disproven, still, as you say, there's that nugget out there, that information that's still out there for right. people worried about that. Right. So, so let me ask you, Jason, if you could wave a magic wand <laughs> and have your way How would COVID-19 have played out differently in the United States and worldwide? Now, I know we all wish it never existed. Right. But it did and does. So what do you think happened right? And where did the U.S. and other countries potentially go wrong?
2: Yeah, I I think early recognition and early action would have been ideal, obviously. And, you know, I I think admittedly, maybe, you know, a lot of people early on said this could be really bad, but I don't think anybody really knew. Mm -hmm. So obviously, we we have the expression hindsight is 2020 for Mm -hmm. a reason, right? Mm -hmm. We know what transpired. And I feel like if we would have been much more stringent, if we knew all of the appropriate mitigation strategies to take that Swiss cheese model, right? We we would have never had the vaccine at the very beginning. I thought the vaccine is something that we got very, very, very right. People started working on that and we started you know, it, it was like, it was amazing, actually, mm-hmm. that we had such an effective vaccine available and, and I, in such I a short think period
1: people of time. Appreciate no, they don't. That they don't. Because when I tell people the vaccine is like a miracle, it's miraculous. Even though we had the technology, we had the vaccine. The way that it was done and the speed with which it was done, and it was still extremely safe and went through all the quality control checks. You know, the FDA was is not you know going to be very and and pretty soon the vaccine, as I understand it through the FDA, is going to be fully approved. Right, but. It, even then, you know, will people be anxious to get it? I don't know. I yeah, don't know. But, we'll have to see. But we, we but really it's are
2: so lucky. I yes. mean, if you look, I, I was giving some statistics, you know, in January, when we just were rolling out the vaccine to the, to the general public seniors in Florida, uh, one in every two hospitalized patients was 70 years of age or older. Mm-hmm. Now it's one in every four. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it is shifting the age distribution towards younger ages because older people in our society are more sure. protected through the vaccinations. Even though we will probably see a pretty big fourth wave of mm-hmm. the pandemic in Florida, the deaths will probably not be as much as they would have been in the past. That's largely thankful. So, yes, we're very lucky because, again, yes. when you see the ravaged countries right now experiencing mm-hmm. so many deaths, it's because they have so few people. They don't have access. This is not a vaccine hesitancy. This is an yes. un. availability availability. of the vaccine for large Mm -hmm. portions of the population. So Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. yes, we're lucky. And yes, that's one of the things that I think we got very right. Mm -hmm. But um, I I think it's just, you know, the uh, seriousness with which we took Mm COVID-19 at the beginning or lack thereof. I, I think if we would have stamped it out earlier, Realized this Swiss cheese model that, you know, one single mitigation effort is, you know, it has holes in it by itself. But if we layer these things on top of one another, if we didn't hyper politicize something as simple as mask wearing, um, you know, it really is. Nobody likes masks. I hate to wear masks, but it, Admittedly, when you have a pandemic and somebody tells you, "Well, you can help to curb spread yeah. by wearing something like a mask that is really right. not—I don't know—it's not that inhibitory." Um, I feel like if we wouldn't have politicized it, everybody would have worn it. Mm-hmm. Everybody would have engaged in social mm-hmm. distancing. We could have even gotten back to a better balance of living our lives because you know a lot of people ask me. I mean, we could right now even we could all go in our homes for six months and we'd we'd get rid of COVID nineteen but that's not living, right? We right. have to find a balance. Mm. COVID-19 is here and we have to live with it, mm-hmm. but we could have struck a better balance if we would have taken immediate action. But again, that that is an easy thing to say now because of how bad it got. Yeah. But I think there are a lot of warning signs that we've already had. You know, we had the summer surge mm-hmm. and then we relaxed our mitigation in the fall Amen. and then we had a winter surge and then we relaxed our mitigation. And again, we, we allowed the virus to keep kind of rolling the dice to get these variants of concern, more transmissible, and that are kind of making our lives miserable again. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's there's a big perception that scientists, public health professionals are kind of an impedance to getting back to normal life mm-hmm. as we know it.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't Heard I don't that. see
2: us that way, right? We're the no. conduit by which you do that, right? We're trying That's to help take appropriate it. action mm-hmm. to get there. We want to get there. We don't want to <laughs> make people's lives miserable. There, there is no ulterior motive that we like this. I can promise you, at least I don't. And I, I'm happy to speak for all scientists That's in right. saying, we don't love this pandemic. We don't like no. all of these steps that we have to take. Every time I know we've got to roll out the the mask and do all of these things, like I love being around people. I love seeing people mm-hmm. in person and interacting. Mm -hmm. And this is really, I mean, it it stymied so much. I mean, there was so So much of the time that before the vaccines rolled out, I have a three-year-old and I have loving parents who live two miles away and we wouldn't be getting together in person without massive social distancing. And, you know, I hate that. Sure. But but Mm -hmm. I think we are trying to take the appropriate steps To get back to normal and we will change our recommendations as the science evolves Mm -hmm. but i think we're always trying to do it in an evidence-based fashion right and again i i understand people's frustration that we keep having to do these things that nobody likes to do and we'll probably continue to have to do it for a little while longer if we're going to prevent people from getting severely ill and dying yeah
1: that's true. So I think my next question was about what would we advocate for in the future, but I think you've already addressed that. To some <laughs> of uh, you know, positive change yeah. to, to the pandemic. I mean, we've learned a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, though, as a behavioral scientist myself and as an injury prevention scientist, I think what we need to do is step back and reinforce and look at our communication strategies, because I think we took a lot for granted, I really do. We thought, we'll roll it out, the vaccine, everybody will see the benefit of this. We understand people have different perceptions of risk and all that. We've got all the theories, all the models, right, that, that we know. But in reality, did we not anticipate this backlash and all of the politicization? I don't think we did.
2: No. And, and, and there's a lot we can learn from that. Yeah. You know, and, and and even like the sense of we're all in this together right think about what happened with 9-11 the entire country didn't matter who you were yeah, the entire right. country like right. congealed and and we are one and we're, we're we're fighting against something it really should have been that way right. with the COVID 19 pandemic instead it started to splinter and mm-hmm. you now, it was it was less about trying to protect each other and more about just taking a stance, whether it's the left or the right, taking a stance that falls in line with kind of where you fell on the political spectrum. Right. And that was unfortunate. But should we have anticipated not only hesitancy to the vaccine, but how challenging it would be yes. for certain people to get vaccinated? I can't mm-hmm. underscore that enough. Mm-hmm. It's not just the vaccine hesitant or people who don't ever wanna get vaccinated, that's not who is not fully protected right now. It continues to be people with transportation challenges, people who are scared about missing a single day from work and mm-hmm. going to do this. Mm-hmm. People who don't really know that it's fully accessible or that that they have these options. And that digital divide, man, I tell you, it, yes. it is pronounced. There are plenty of people that are intimidated. You know, s- just scan this QR code. What in the world is a QR code? What are you code? talking <laughs> about? I don't have a smartphone. Right. Like I don't have a computer. I don't have internet access at home. Right. We we underestimate how many people that could be. So I I don't, I just hate that we, we say all people yes. who are not protected by the vaccine mm-hmm. right now are all the same. They are not. right And we should have anticipated those barriers we should as have. well as people pushing back. We That's had not. enough early warning in what happened in the summer surge and kind of where people's minds were mm-hmm. that when we rolled this out, it just wasn't going to be smooth sailing. Yeah. 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 We should have it anticipated
1: is. that. I agree with you. So Carla, let me send this back over to you. I'm going to ask our student, Carla. Now, Carla, she's just a little bit younger, at least than me. Uh, Maybe you too, Jason, a little bit. But uh, what are the feelings of students on this topic? You know, young individuals have been the drivers of so much public health advocacy and change recently, and this includes racism and gun violence. But what about immunizations, Carla? This is tricky because a lot of the – well, not a lot, but – that you know we hear in the news that you know young people they're yeah we don't know if we're going to get vaccinated right we don't know like you know let's just pick on my nephew again you know hey i think i had covid they told me i had covid you know i got antibodies i'm young i'm gonna be fine i'm gonna get a little runny nose and a sore throat so so how can students like yourself in advocacy be
0: instrumental
1: and critical Yeah, well, I would have to agree
0: with you and Dr. Salemi, like communication, it's a great Mm -hmm. way to be instrumental. Like I believe there's so with so with social media and so many other outlets, there's so much uh, misinformation. So I think that as health students and future professionals, we have the skills and knowledge to be able to share information that's coming from evidence based in reliable sources. So I think that's a great way to having or starting those conversations with family and relative. Like I always put the example of my mom. So back home in Venezuela, that's where she lives. Mm-hmm. Most people get their information from WhatsApp, from WhatsApp messages. Okay. So they get this like long chain of messages that go around in the family, probably with information that is not right. And she gets confused and worried. And she reach out to me like, I, I read if I drink this, if I mix this, if I take this medication, I'll be protected and things like that. So I take the time to be to explain her what I know in a way that she can understand. So I mm-hmm. think like those really small actions can take us up, you know, make a big right. change. Uh, right. And just starting this conversation with family and friends. Like I have a lot of friends that are against vaccinations or are hesitant or on the fence about vaccinations. And like Dr. Solomon said, I explained them why I am vaccinated, sure. why I do believe in vaccinations and what I know, you know, hearing from other people, like, Dr. Lillard mm-hmm. and Dr. Salemi, mm-hmm. like what you guys share with us as students. So, yeah.
2: and, and I wonder, you know, what would happen if your mother didn't have you? That's Just right. like what exactly. would happen when my parents yeah. went to sign up for the vaccination and they don't know the yeah. first thing about computers? Mm-hmm. What would happen if I wasn't there trying to register, trying to register over and over? Is your mother a bad person? Mm-mm. No. But if that's the only information source she had exactly. and she didn't have you to clarify things, she would be very hesitant right. to yeah. do those things. And right? even
0: though um, the the example that I mentioned is from back home because that's where she lives, I'm sure like a lot of Hispanics living in the United sure. States is still carry those traditions mm-hmm. and because it's part of their culture, just getting information f- from that type of, of, of outlet. So I think it's a great point, at least for the Hispanic community, to reach out to them through through this, this chains of of messages and things. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I like the family aspect. I think that's absolutely right. Because in a lot of the when we're looking at communication strategies now, and how we're going to change things up, I've seen in a lot of the health promotion, health education literature, it's like, we need to bring this back to families, you know, as public health professionals, we're always talking about the population, because that's we do, we do population health, we want everybody, the population, we have a very broad focus. But for people that are are not in public health or not in our area you know they don't see the whole world we we tend to look oh this is you know for the United States internationally globally whatever they see their family they see what's important to them you know basically what's important to them is often that immediate family so when you say you'll be protecting your family the children in your family Mm -hmm. you know your elderly grandparents that sort of thing I think that's going to resonate much better than talking about how public health wants to do this on a global scale. We understand that. But, you know, so I I, I really understand what you're saying about your mother and you know, and that, and it's, it's, will that have, you know, the hope with that is obviously, we build that up, we build that up, we build that up, and it has a huge effect then. Exactly, yeah. That's a
2: big challenge, you mentioned some of, you take this and you'll get better. Yes, it's all out there. They are feverish and so persistent about sending those messages. So just yesterday, Mm -hmm. I was on CNN, and Mm -hmm. by the time that I had, you know, been done with that interview, maybe an hour later, I already had a ton of emails that were sent to me because people can find my personal email through my dashboard. And some of them were not so nice. Some of them were very nice, (laughs) thank you. But some of them were, this is what you need to convey to the media. And it was just all of these things that people should be taking and taking copper and Mm -hmm. and just like all of these things that your mother was probably seeing through WhatsApp, but that are not scientifically based. But my point is, it's just constant and, and they flood the streams of information with these false messages, Mm -hmm. how can people not pay attention to them in some way? I mean, unless you're trained to evaluate evidence or you have somebody who is a public health student, or (laughs) not many people do, right? So that's what I mean by don't just vilify all people who aren't vaccinated yet. They're being bombarded with information that is just muddying the water, and they view taking the vaccine as a risk, even though their risk is much smaller. It's much worse to get COVID-19, right? The, the potential ramifications mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. infinitely worse for every age group who has a vaccine eligible age, like go and mm-hmm. get the vaccine. But for them, it, it, it sows those seeds of doubt. And when you live in a world where maybe all information is treated as equal, you know, yes. you can't filter it. You're yes. getting the scientists saying one thing. You're getting these people saying another mm-hmm. thing. And mm-hmm. it's confusing. What's the best thing that we do? Well, we, we freeze up and we're like, well, mm-hmm. let me just not take any action. Any action. And so, or the
1: easiest course of action. Right, which is know, to do because, nothing. <laughs> which is probably do nothing. And then you have all the conspiracy theories yeah. that have come out of, which in the last several years have just blown my mind. These yeah. conspiracy theories that have come out. But, but I think what we've learned is, you know, We've never ignored them, but you have to take them very seriously now. And as you said, with social media, everything right now exploding yeah. with people. I mean, even if you're not savvy right. with a, an, an iPhone or, or with the computer, you're still getting social media one way or another. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so it's very, very, very interesting. Oh, so much to do. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah. <laughs> so much I to wish do. there wasn't. I wish we were done.
2: So much. I wish
0: I, I do, too. Anything else? No, um, I think that's it. I thank you for your time, both of you. I feel like I learned a lot. Oh, yeah. Just hearing the numbers, hearing what's what's out there. So well, um, your
1: generation is going to be it, right? Yeah. So yeah, your exciting generation is going to be an epidemiology <laughs> student no <pressure>. right now. <laughs> yeah, no but, so uh, do you have any other uh, remarks, uh, Jason? I,
2: you know, I, I don't think so. I, I just hope that people do realize that we really are in this together. Yes. Um, You know, we're we're not out of the woods yet. I know we keep having to double down and we Mm -hmm. keep asking people to do things that they don't want to do. We've all got COVID fatigue. Yes. And so I always try and take the opportunity to thank everybody. Mm -hmm. Everybody, whether you're vaccinated or not, whether you're wearing masks in public or not, I know that most people are genuinely trying to do the right things. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. I don't think anybody wishes ill on anybody else, and so thank you to the people that continue to listen to our recommendations. I know that the information coming out from all of these different streams can be confusing. We'll try to always set the record straight and and pass to you information that is accurate on how you protect yourself and your families, Uh, but I do know it's an immense challenge. And so yes. I hope you can just stay in there with us a little bit longer. <laughs> We're
1: learning as much as Yeah, there, absolutely. As as other and, and folks I am hopeful
2: learning. at the end of the day that, I'm hopeful, I'm not sure, yeah. that this will be the final wave because we are continuing to get a lot of natural immunity. Unfortunately, a mm-hmm. lot of people are being hospitalized because of that right now. Mm-hmm. But a lot more people are getting the virus and at least building up some immunity. A lot of people mm-hmm. continue to get vaccinated. Hopefully we can continue to make progress on that front. And um, I'm hoping by the end of the year, talk a lot less about COVID-19. Maybe, yeah. We thought right now,
1: we were joking before the podcast that we thought this podcast would be about, oh, we're back to normal. What are yeah. some recommendations for the future, but not so much. But before we leave, leave the topic, um, I wanted to ask you, people that are uh, immunocompromised, yes. okay, um, mm-hmm. some of the cases of people, as you mentioned, who are fully vaccinated, they are becoming ill. And I think for folks who are um, on chemotherapy, people who are immunocompromised, um, do you agree with the recommendation that they should still wear masks um, when they're in uh, public, especially um, in in inside, mm-hmm. you know, where there might be uh, lots of individuals, even though they're fully vaccinated? I think that's really important to yeah. just... Dr. Lila. Right. I'm so
2: happy you brought that up, and, yeah. and no kidding, I just got an email about that from a woman in the public who heard me on uh, WFLA this morning mm-hmm. uh, on the mm-hmm. radio, mm-hmm. and she sent me an email and said, please, please, please underscore my husband was fully vaccinated, yes. but he is immunocompromised. He's right now fighting for his life in the ICU. And so actually my recommendation is not just for fully vaccinated people who are immunocompromised to wear a mask. I think right now, looking at the numbers and yes. the trajectory that we're heading on, mm-hmm. everybody should be wearing a mask when okay. you're in indoor public settings. I do. I'm, mm-hmm. um, okay. I'm a relatively, I'd right. like to consider myself a relatively young man in his mid-40s who is otherwise healthy and fully vaccinated. I, I am not wearing a mask in public to protect myself. Right. I am wearing a mask in public because I know there are still 52% of our population who are unvaccinated, or at least not mm-hmm. fully protected through vaccination. Again, children younger than 12, yes. even though they're, they're less likely to get sick, we're having 23 hospitalized pediatric patients every day right now for COVID-19. I'd like to prevent that as much as I can. So mm-hmm. I wear a mask because I know I can catch the virus, transmit it to others. And so I wanna protect my community and bring community spread mm-hmm. down. Cause again, even though I hate to mention it, the more that we allow these variants and the you know the virus in general mm-hmm. to replicate, the more likely these variants, new ones, will emerge. And God new forbid emerge. we have some uh, mm-hmm. so, some variant that comes up that is good at evading the vaccine. Then we're really in a more dangerous yes. place. Then, it,
1: yeah, then it's a whole new ball game.
2: And, and you you did mention so there there is one more thing that I would be remiss if I didn't say because I believe this is also immensely important. There's a narrative out there that somehow the very, what I believe to be the very hardworking people at the Florida Department of Health, the epidemiology team over yes. there, has been outstanding. There's there's this notion that Florida is being nefarious with their data. They're hiding information. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just saw a story that came out on Friday after they released their weekly report that suggested that they're making an error. They're underestimating the number of deaths mm-hmm. that were occurring. And so much of this is actually just misreading the data. The data data are actually factual, but understandably, people don't know how to read these data, and they make kind of false accusations. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that a lot of hardworking people at the Agency for Healthcare Administration and the Florida Department of Health, who have probably just been working round the clock to try and compile all of this information, allow us to make evidence-based decisions, I think they've been vilified Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. without do justice. You, you talked right. earlier that we, we have this null hypothesis that we assume yeah. that nothing is going on. Nothing and I feel like on. with Florida data, just because of all the publicity that has happened sure. with it, I think we, we, we have a base and we say, we're gonna assume that something bad is happening and we're gonna look for a reason to, to you yeah. know, believe that and spread that mm-hmm. even more. And I've been working with these data for quite a long time. I do not work for the Florida Department of Health, obviously. <laughs> and so I don't know the truth, but you know, I have a YouTube page where I've tried to put out a lot of videos to help people understand yes, the different data. Well, one mm-hmm. of those videos has been why I trust the Florida Department of Health's data, mm-hmm. that I've scrutinized it, that it is imperfect. There are errors in it. We underestimate the number of cases. We underestimated the number of of deaths early in the pandemic but so has every other state in the country. Mm -hmm. Florida is not more egregious in any way than that. So I would just like to also thank the very hardworking people at the Department of Health. My dashboard, which has gotten a lot of attention, Mm -hmm. would never have been possible if it wasn't for the immense amounts of data that they provided. And even though right now they're only reporting on a weekly basis, I know they continue to report very granular data to the CDC, the Department of Health and Human Services, who continue to make those data available for every state in the country mm-hmm. so I know they're still working hard. I know, I know that maybe now moving to a weekly reporting mechanism mm-hmm. is allowing them a lot more time to provide guidance to our county health departments, do more sophisticated analyses that better help us to understand where we are in the pandemic. So I just want to make sure that I, I give them a big thanks because yeah. It, yeah. it's only absolutely. through them that I've been able to do what I've done.
1: Oh, That's great. Yes, absolutely. Very hard-working mm-hmm. people and are enduring this just like everyone right right? trying to get Mm. through this uh pandemic to the other side well if there's no more discussion. We could talk all day long. All day. As we can. <laughs> our listeners are getting tired. Yes. Yeah, so. I can't wait
2: until I talk about just maternal and child health and uh-oh, babies born with uh-oh. birth defects. You know, <laughs> there, there's so much work to be there's done so with that. But right work. now, I understand it's, yes. it's a lot of COVID 19.
1: That's right. Well, thank you so much. On behalf of the USF College of Public Health Activist Lab, our wonderful guest, Dr. Jason Salemi, our student co host, Carla, we thank you for joining us. And hey, keep listening. We have more podcasts coming soon. As always, we would love to hear your feedback let us know how we're doing by emailing us at cophactivistlab@usf.edu. at usf.edu so hey until next time this is dr karen liller remember find your voice let's change it up for the better keep listening and join advocation change it up tell your friends and family we're on all media apple spotify and more so thank you again and hey as it gets safer to be out and about come see us in the activist lab